Now we're looking at the, the last part of 1 Corinthians 13 this evening, uh, from verse 8, where we read, Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. In one of the, the commentaries that I've been using as I've been looking at the, um, the chapter, uh, Leon Morris uh, says this at this point. He says, The commentator cannot finish writing on this chapter without a sense that clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. Here, what is true of all scripture is true in a special measure, that no comment can be adequate to so great a theme. That's uh, very true. Certainly, if it's Leon Morris felt that, then how much more uh, this poor preacher, and how much more all of us, I'm sure, as we seek not only to hear, but to, to put into practice what uh, this chapter teaches. Paul's been holding out to us the, the very facets of Christian love, of agape love, uh, as though it were like a diamond with different faces on it, and he's been holding each up to our admiration. And we've seen that the, the quality of agape love is seen supremely and perfectly only in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is patient, he is kind, he does not envy, he does not boast, he is not proud, he is not rude, he is not self-seeking, he is not easily angered, he keeps no record of wrongs, he does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus, in other words, always gave himself for others. There was an outward movement in his life, always. And you remember at the beginning how we said that if we, instead of putting Jesus' name there, insert our own name into this description of love, there's an awkwardness, there's an embarrassment, really, to the sentences as we read them. And that, of course, uh, is the, the impact that the chapter would have had on the church at Corinth, because love was not predominant in the lives of the people at Corinth. They were not patient. Uh, indeed, the, the well-off people in Corinth came uh, to the, the so-called love feast or agape feast, which was held before the communion, where, where they didn't actually have a, a substantial food element. And so impatient were they that they didn't wait for the poor, uh, especially the slaves who were restricted in when they could get away. 
They didn't wait for them to come, and they ate and drank to excess. They exhibited uh, the, the very opposite behavior of agape love. And this chapter was designed to generate uh, blushes and deep awkwardness, really, amongst its first readers. It wasn't designed to, to generate warm fuzzies within the readers of uh, Corinth. And so it's kind of ironic that uh, its use uh, today is very different. We wonder what Paul would have made of the fact that it's uh, such a popular chapter at weddings and it's used uh, in so many uh, different forms of Christian merchandise. That wasn't its original intention. And we come to the final section now where Paul is putting things in perspective for the Corinthians. And he's wanting to show them the importance of making the main things the main things. Uh, he wants to wean them away from being distracted by side shows. I don't know about you, but I, I'm a bit of a sucker when it comes to uh, these lists. They seem to crop up on the internet a lot. Lists of things, you know, top ten, such and such of things. Uh, things that attract my eye are pretty kind of left side, you know, top ten apple varieties, things like that. But imagine for a moment that uh, there was a list of the top ten cars. And you have a, a certain idea of what is going to make the top uh, of this list of top ten cars. And th there is a car, and it's got, uh, it's all chrome, you know, it's, it's a fancy car with spoilers and a really uh, high top speed. And it looks great, and you think it's surely going to be number one in this list. And then you see the list, and actually it's a, a kind of fairly, what looks like a fairly ordinary German car as number one. And this car has just scraped in at number 10. The, the ordering has completely surprised you. It's, it's a completely, complete, complete reversal of what you expected. And the reasons are that this uh, high-chrome, spoiler-covered, uh, diesel-guzzling uh, machine uh, emits uh, to the extent that the, the grass verges die as it passes. And it has a limit on its production. It's going to be phased out of production because it's so polluting. It has a limited shelf life. And so it doesn't make the top, uh, it just barely gets into the top. Anymore. On the other hand, there's this other car, and it has these uh, qualities of, of being frugal and, and, and gentle on the environment and of good road handling and high safety. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that They've got their list wrong as well. Uh, they are, are focusing on things which have got a limited shelf life. Things which are going to pass away because they're only designed for a certain period in church history. The gifts that they prize so highly are not going to last. And they have overlooked the ones that are actually in the top three. The top three. Faith, hope, and number one, love. Why the Corinthians got things so badly wrong was that they had failed to understand that spiritual gifts, charismatic gifts, are not a sign 
of attaining perfection. Perfection only comes in heaven. That's the first Delta uh, teaching. But, secondly, maturity, Christian maturity, growing up in our understanding, is for now. Perfection's for heaven, but being a mature believer is for now. And the gifts to aim for, the elements that make up for Christian maturity, are faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love. Perfection, then, first of all, is for heaven. There are two key words that point to the confusion of the Corinthians. The words now and then, which are a contrast in verse 12. Now, now refers to this age. Uh, verse 12, now we see but a poor reflection as in the mirror, then we shall see face to face. Uh, now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Contrast, now, then. Now is the age in which we're living. Uh, the age between Jesus' uh, ascension, having done his work, and his return. It's an age in which we're sinful, uh, an age in which we're struggling with sin, even as Christians. Uh, an age in which uh, there is all kinds of limits in this fallen world. And then there's the then, the future. And that's pointing to the time of the renewal of everything when Jesus returns. The time of perfection when we are with the Lord in new bodies and with no sin. Now, then. And the Corinthians had got it wrong because they were so excited with the spiritual gifts that God had given them that they think that they have already arrived. They think that it's then rather than now. They think that they're living in the then, whereas in fact they're living in the now. And they think that that's a mark that they have achieved heavenly perfection. They've arrived. Paul picks up uh, on the three main things that they had made a great deal of and had taken to be signs of having achieved perfection. The three gifts that they prized very highly. They boasted of their prophecy. God gave them direct revelations. Not for the speakers in Corinth church, uh, the sweating uh, away in the study to prepare sermons. They didn't need to bother with that. It was given directly to them as they stood up in front of the congregation. But their worship was something else as well because they had tongue speaking in the services. They had people who spoke in uh, known languages. And uh, I, I guess that because sometimes the languages weren't interpreted, uh, there, there was a theory that uh, there was also the tongue of angels going on as well. So their worship was heavenly. So There's heavenly worship going on here. And they had the gift of understanding. They had knowledge, uh, the gift of knowledge, and they thought that they, they had a heavenly understanding that left everybody behind. In fact, they thought that Paul uh, had been left behind. They thought that Paul needed to catch up on what was uh, being demonstrated so excellently in Corinth. 
And for that reason, they had formed into all kinds of factions, parties. They were enjoying heaven on earth. Paul seemed a little bit earthbound by comparison. And Paul needs to point out to them that the time for perfection lies ahead. Notice he's, he's not, he doesn't uh, deny that they have the gifts, and he doesn't denigrate the gifts. He doesn't uh, say that they're unworthy. In fact, he tells them that they are to pursue the spiritual gifts. Uh, but he simply points out that they are not any kind of evidence that they have reached heavenly perfection. And Paul's logic is devastating. I uh, see the Corinthians are puffed up because they think that the charismatic gifts are evidence that they are perfected. Now, you might think to yourself, well, it's a bit strange that anybody would think that they were perfect. But in actual fact, uh, in church history, there have been groups of people who have taught uh, a form of, of perfectionism. Not going back to the church fathers, but more recently, uh, John Wesley had a form of Christian perfectionism. You can only really argue for it if you uh, adjust uh, how you understand sin. Otherwise, uh, it, 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 it looks very improbable. But if sin is seen as a, as a willing, a willful disobedience to known commandments, uh, then you, you shrink down sin and you, you make perfection seem a little bit more attainable. Um, but they, uh, they were concluding that they had this heavenly perfection. And uh, Paul points out that the evidences that they have uh, adduced, the evidence that these evidences that they have pointed to, are the very things which will not be there when we have attained heavenly perfection. There's a fatal flaw in their argument. They'll be done away with. They won't be there when we are truly perfect. Prophecies uh, will not be in glory. There will be no prophetic word because we will be in the presence of God. Uh, all of the things that they're speaking about are, are ways of God communicating with us. And they're for a certain time only. But when we're in glory, when uh, Jesus has returned and things are new, then God will communicate directly with us. There'll be no need for prophecy. There'll be no need for ecstatic tongue speaking or the gift of knowledge. Because this communication with God will be direct. It won't be uh, mediated through these things. So these gifts, of which they're so proud, have a limited shelf life. They're like that evil, guzzling, chrome-plated car. It's going to be phased out. So why get all excited about them when they are not going to endure they're not the, the markers that they should be looking at. They're all, Paul says, at best, uh, interim gifts. They're designed for a certain time. There's a time coming, he says, when we will see face to face. These things communicate the truth concerning God. Uh, prophecy, tongues, and the gift of knowledge. But they communicate the truth only imperfectly. And Paul says it's like looking at, at your reflection in a mirror. It's the difference between looking at yourself in a mirror and seeing face to face. 
And in Corinth, uh, there was the manufacturer of mirrors, and they weren't the mirrors that we know, you know, with glass and mercury backing. They were polished metal, and so they wouldn't have served uh, to give a sharper reflection as, as modern mirrors. You would have seen uh, but a poor reflection. One day we're going to see perfectly. You know when you upgrade your TV and uh, you get this uh, high-definition TV, it's wow, you know, it's so different from, from the old kind of TV. Everything seems so much more real and so uh, much more vivid and lifelike. But still not the same as seeing nature, uh, as it were, uh, up close, being there and seeing face to face. And Paul's saying, one day, uh, we're going to see things as they really are. It will be supremely better than even HD vision. We see face to face. We're going to see Jesus face to face. So the perfection isn't now. Perfection is coming. Perfection is then. But if that's the case, if perfection is for then, there is something that Paul says that's for now and that you guys in Corinth ought to be focusing on. And that now is for Christian maturity. That's Paul's message in verse 11. Uh, he's speaking kind of autobiographically. He's, I mean, he's continuing this, this contrast between the imperfect and the perfect, you know, between being childlike and growing up. But he's really stressing the fact that this is now for the present time. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Paul mentions the importance of Christian maturity again and again uh, in his writings. Chapter uh, 3, verse 1 in 1 Corinthians, he, he tells him, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, as mere infants in Christ. And in chapter, the next chapter, chapter 14, verse 20, Brothers, stop thinking like children. In fact, Paul will summarize the whole purpose of his ministry as bringing up believers to maturity in Christ. That's what he is about Colossians 1, verse 28. Uh, he is the one, that's Christ, is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Colossians uh, 1.28, Ephesians 4.12 and 13, then we will no longer be infants. It's the same story. Stop being children, grow up, become adults in the Christian life. We'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Don't be kids, be adults, grow up. That's the message. That's for the now. The perfection that you're boasting of, uh, of 
knowing God perfectly is for then, but growing up in understanding is for now. Well, what, what are the, the characteristics of uh, the immature person? Uh, one of the characteristics would be showing off. Uh, children will show off. Uh, a child comes up to you and says, look at me, look at me, look at me. Uh, look at my new shoes. Uh, look at me do cartoons. Look at me, you know, and, and they say, well, that's, that's fine. We make allowances because children do that. But if an, if an adult came up to you and uh, went into your face and said, look at me, look at me, look at my shoes, uh, look what I can do. There's something bizarre about that, isn't there? There's something really wrong, something radically immature in drawing attention to yourself in that way. And... That was the, the problem with Corinth. Uh, they had such pride in those gifts which uh, really drew attention to themselves. They, they thought that they were just the greatest, that they had uh, gifts which showed that they had really were, you know, they had a direct line with heaven. They were engaged in things which showed that they had heavenly perfection. And so spiritual maturity shows itself in uh, a kind of show off. Look at me. Look at us. Look at us. Uh, some churches uh, will do that. If you go to some uh, church websites, thinking probably especially of some of the, the mega churches uh, stateside, uh, there are incredible claims made uh, for them. Uh, you look at some of the pictures and you wonder to yourself, is this a rock stadium or is this uh, a Christian uh, assembly that we're looking at here? dominated by, you know, big amps and equipment and so on, and great uh, blown-up claims about the nature of what people can expect. And uh, you can imagine how Corinth would have fitted into that way of thinking, you know, how they would have projected themselves as a church, how they would have drawn visitors in, how they might have advertised themselves on the web uh, in Corinth, your power ministry, your secrets revealed, your troubles removed, dynamic worship and deliverance ministries. Come and expect sensational worship. We've arrived. Look at us. Look at us. And it's better uh, by far to acknowledge that our best wisdom and knowledge is imperfect. Paul's saying here, best he says, we're seeing in a glass darkly. We've got so much to rejoice over that God has given us. We are actually so much more privileged than the Corinthians insofar as the knowledge that God has given to us. Uh, remember that these Corinthians who are so puffed up about their knowledge did not have a New Testament. <laughs> they had First and Second Corinthians. I don't know what else they would have had at that time. We have a New Testament. We are gloriously privileged to see the, the redemption plan, to see the Old Testament promises fulfilled, to have the explanation of God's mighty acts interpreted by the apostles. What a privilege is ours to have that. 
and we rejoice in that, but we do well, don't we, with Paul to acknowledge that our understanding is limited. Some of us were privileged uh, last Monday to, to be with uh, a man who uh, was asking questions, and lots of questions about the Christian faith, and you feel a little bit uh, funny, you know, but he expects you to have all of the answers, and, and it, it always behoves us as Christians to acknowledge that there is so much that we, we just don't understand. But we are longing also for the day when things will be made plain to us, but that there's a lot, in certainly in regard to suffering, why do people suffer, why do things happen? In regard to uh, how you interpret parts of the Bible, and you have to say, well, <coughs> I don't know. <coughs> I want to know, but my understanding is still imperfect. There's a day coming when it will be perfect, but that's then, not now. But right now, God knows us fully. God knows me. God knows you. Which is an amazing thought, isn't it? God knows me. So he sees right under all of the layers that I, I present to others, and even myself, because we, we understand at times that we are really enigmas to ourselves. How little we understand of ourselves. But God knows you directly. He doesn't have to work out what your personality is like. He simply knows you. And Paul says, we will have a knowledge like that in heaven. We will know as we are known. That's heavenly knowledge. And one day that will be our way of knowing as well. But not now. That's then. This is now. And we are instead to grow up in maturity. And what will that be like? What are the things that mark out the Christian who is growing up maturing? Well, the things that mark the Christian who is growing up, Paul says, are faith and hope and love. Faith and hope and love. The top three are not prophecies, tongue speaking, knowledge, they don't make the cut. <laughs> the must-have qualities for Christian maturity are faith, hope, love. Faith, hope, love. Paul frequently uses these three together. It's interesting, they're, they're like a triad uh, which Paul uses when he wants to describe authentic Christian living. Uh, especially when, at the beginning of his epistles, when he's thanking the Lord for the evidences of genuine Christianity, he points to faith, hope, and love in the people. For example, Colossians 1.4, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that these are marks of someone who has been authentically born again 
of the Spirit of God. They're not ordinary human qualities. You get people <coughs> uh, who are optimistic. No, that's not what's meant here by hope. You, you get people who are, who are trusting people. That's not what's meant by faith. You get people who are warm and affectionate. That's not what's meant here by love. They are spirit-induced qualities, a faith that rests not on our own abilities or goodness, but on God. A hope that sees past our own present difficulties to a future, a glorious future, resting on Jesus' victory in the cross. And a love that's other people-centered, self-forgetful. And these are spirit-born qualities. And all of these qualities bring me out of myself uh, because the sinful uh, condition is to be turned in on yourself, curved in on yourself. And the Holy Spirit kind of bends that the other way so that we're turned out of ourselves. He gives us self-forgetfulness. He gives us the ability to think of others first. And faith and hope and love are not turned in on self turned outwards. And these qualities of Christian character and maturity are developed in the Christian life. Friends, that takes time and it takes a study of the Bible and it takes uh, the using of the means of grace coming to worship, gathering at the sacrament, serving together, enjoying fellowship, you don't go and get uh, instant uh, Christian maturity off the shelf, you know, along with your instant coffee. It doesn't come like that. It has to be worked at. It's a lifelong discipleship. It comes with careful study of the Word. And that's why, you know, when we're thinking practically, that's why in the, the organization of, of our family life as Hope Church, we're committed, we have to be committed to discipleship at every stage of life, that we're committed to growing up in the Lord. Plenty of Christians today in the wider church are content to be entertained, to have people come and to help them pass the time. Well, my calling, at least as a minister, is to, to ensure that the people of this church grow up in their faith, that they are presented as mature we are to have our aim in the congregation to be a people who go out equipped to share the Word of God, to rightly handle the Word of God so that we can help people in need. And that's a very practical way of, of, of ascertaining whether or not you are growing up in the faith. How well are you able to go about the Bible when people come to you who have a particular need? Somebody comes who's had their, you know, their, 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 their head all confused because they've had the Jehovah's Witnesses at the door. And they come to you asking questions. Can you help them? You know where to look in the Bible to help someone whose head has been done in by Jehovah's Witnesses at the door. How do you help uh, someone, a mother, who's wrecked with grief over an abortion? Conscience is riddled with guilt. What scriptures do you point her to? How do you 
uh, speak to an atheist who claims not to believe in God at all. Uh, there's no fast track to being mature, and you never give up on learning. That's why one of the most important uh, things that we do is our, our community groups, because there we can actually uh, go down the gears, and we can ask ourselves, uh, how do we apply this teaching that we were looking at on Sunday uh, to this issue that's really bugging me? Or, I didn't understand that. How do I, uh, what, what does this really mean and how can I obey it? How does it relate to my life and this situation? And we need to be on our guard against anyone who would come in and would suggest that doctrine and understanding is, is not important and what you need is a kind of uh, instant fix in a direct line. To, to God and to uh, perfection. Faith, hope, and love remain. These three remain. History, in fact, shows that the charismatic gifts did, in fact, leave the church, uh, at the very least, for centuries. But faith and hope and love remain. But the greatest, Paul says, the greatest of these is love. Why? Would that be why is the greatest love? And the answer is really that it is of the three the godlike quality. Ask yourself, ask, ask with me uh, questions about uh, how these relate to God Himself. Uh, does God have faith? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Does it? God uh, doesn't uh, require to trust in someone outside himself. He's God of hope. Uh, is God looking forward in ex expectation to something future? Again, you know, just to, just to say that, uh, we realize that no, God doesn't hope. It's, it's not a God-like activity to hope, because God is the one who was and who is and who is to come. Does God love? Certainly, God loves. And more than that, John tells us uh, in his epistle, God is love. And when we, when we look at it like that, we see how it is that love stands out there. Supreme, it's the number one. It's top of the list. Love is the, the prime uh, attribute. And as God's Spirit works through uh, our lives, what's happening uh, is that He is ultimately producing a tiny piece of the nature of God in our lives. God produces love, agape love in our lives. Isn't that remarkable to think of that? God is love. His Spirit is producing love in our hearts. And therefore, uh, God's great plan, the reversal of the fall, renewing His image in our lives is being worked out as we show His love to others. <coughs> And in heaven there will be no longer the need for faith or hope. But heaven, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote once, heaven is a world of love. 
I want, I want to finish, actually, I'm just reading for you just this exquisite passage from a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached uh, with that title, Heaven is a World of Love. Uh, it was uh, the last in the, the sermon series that he, he preached uh, on 1 Corinthians 13. This is what he says. Love is always a sweet principle, and especially divine love. This even on earth is a spring of sweetness, but in heaven it will become a stream, a river, an ocean. All shall stand about the God of glory, who is the great fountain of love, opening as it were to every soul to be filled with those effusions of love that are poured forth from his fullness, just as the flowers on the earth in the bright and joyous days of spring open their bosoms to the sun to be filled with his light and warmth and to flourish in beauty a fragrance under his cheering rays. Every saint in heaven is as a flower in that garden of God. And holy love is the fragrance and sweet odour that they all send forth, and with which they fill the bowers of that paradise above. Every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly <coughs> harmonises with every other note, and all together blend in the most rapturous <coughs> strains in praising God and the Lamb forever, and so all help each other to their utmost, to express the love of the whole society to its glorious Father and Head, and to pour back love into the great fountain of love whence they are supplied with love and blessedness and glory. And thus they will love and reign in love, and in that godlike joy that is its blessed fruit, such as I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered the heart of man, in this world to conceive. Heaven is a world of love. Heavenly Father, we bless and praise you for your word. We do indeed sense that we are standing on holy ground as we contemplate uh, the love with which Jesus loves, the love he calls us to love, the love that will show that we are your children. Lord, forgive us for all unloveliness within us, all hardness, all resistance to your love, and slowness to show it. And grant that we individually, uh, with more and more, show the love of Christ. And that corporately, we would be more and more marked by this selfless, this outward-turned love with which Christ has first loved us. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Let's uh, close with the translation of the Welsh.